This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Welcome to The Health Podcast, a new season from BBC Good Food. I'm Tracy Ray, Qualified Nutritionist and Health Editor here at BBC Good Food. In this series, I'll be your host as we explore the world of health and wellness through a series of interviews with renowned and innovative experts across the globe, where I'll be seeking out some of the best practical tips and advice they have to offer. Remember that all content provided here is for informational purposes only. If you have any questions or concerns related to your personal health, you should first seek the advice of your local healthcare practitioner. Welcome to part two of our two-part episode with Dr. Megan Rossi. If you haven't listened to part one, pause this episode and head over to our podcast page to catch part one there first. We're continuing the conversation with Dr. Megan Rossi, also known as the Gut Health Doctor, on supporting your gut health. In this episode, we dive even deeper, discussing topics such as IBS and the FODMAP diet. Let's pick up where we left off. So before I start picking your brain on some of the clinical gut conditions that we see a lot, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about pre and probiotics, because those are two terms that are always flying around. um, And I think there's probably a lot of people that don't fully understand what are we talking about when we say prebiotic and probiotic? Is it something that we can get through food? Is it taken through a pill? 
what's the situation there? I mean, it's so easy to get them confused because they're literally one letter difference in, exactly. in how they're spelled. So P-R-E-biotic, prebiotic, essentially think of that as like the food for the gut bacteria. Um, so most prebiotics are types of dietary fiber. So they're actually they're found in all our plant-based foods. So for the vast majority of people, um, you can absolutely get your prebiotics so that the fiber, um, specific types of fiber for your gut bacteria via diet. You don't need to take any supplements. I mean, in the clinical setting, there are very few occasions where I recommend a specific type of prebiotic supplement. But for most people, if you're getting your 30 plant-based points a week, um, you're going to be getting enough prebiotics to nourish your gut bacteria. So you don't need to worry about that kind of takes care of itself. Um, you know, there are some foods that are higher in prebiotics, but I don't necessarily think people need to get fixated that, oh, I need to have extra legumes and garlic and onion because they're higher in prebiotics. If you're having that diversity, you're going to be getting enough in. Now there's the other word, the probiotic, P-R-O-biotic. Now these are like, these are the live microorganisms, i.e. the bacteria, but some are also types of yeast, which is another type of microorganism or a microbe that have shown to have a benefit in clinical trial. So in terms of things like fermented foods like kimchi and sauerkraut and kombucha that people may have heard of, um, they, don't, they contain these live bacteria, but we can't call them probiotics you know, legally in the UK yeah. because they haven't shown to have a health benefit in clinical trials. Um, so that's why you'll start to see in the supermarket, if you look out for things, it'll say live cultures and not the word probiotic because probiotic is protected uh, in the food industry. Um, and then we move on to the supplement form of probiotic. So, sorry, in terms of the fermented foods, the evidence uh, is quite limited for them, um, but I think they taste great. So why not start to include them in your plate? And for those who are really interested, um, my research team at King's did a, a clinical review of the evidence for uh, all the different types of fermented foods. So I've got that on the website. You can access it for free if you want the kind of science and nitty gritty. So there's many mm. test tube studies showing benefits, but they haven't been translated to human studies yet because, you know, it's hard to fund those sorts of studies. But yeah, my, my view on it is have fermented foods because they taste great. And if there's an additional benefit, hey, that's a win for you. In terms of the supplement form, I think... This is a really confused space um, and I think there is a lot of um, you know, strong and even aggressive marketing from uh, companies suggesting that we need to have these probiotics, these supplements to have good gut health. Yeah. Now, if you've generally got good uh, gut health, you, know, you do your assessment, you don't have any gut symptoms, actually the science suggests you don't need to take any of these probiotics. You know, they're essentially a waste of money. Mm. And in some cases, maybe they might do your gut a disservice because you're just supplementing one type in. However, there are some areas, more clinical areas, where there's actually really strong evidence to take a very specific probiotic. And the thing we need to think about, there is literally, you know, thousands of different bacteria and yeast. And each different one does different things. So if you have iron deficiency, for example, you're not going to go and take a calcium supplement and expect your iron deficiency to improve, are you? Yeah. The same goes with probiotics. You need to be so specific about the exact type of bacteria you're having, the dose you're having it, etc. Now, I know that sounds very clinical, but if we want the most out of probiotics, you need to be very prescriptive about it. Um, and in Eat Yourself Healthy, I did... Um, 
get some of my research colleagues to critically review the evidence. And we came up with seven areas where there's actually really quite good evidence to take a specific probiotic. And we've drafted those uh, probiotic prescriptions. So an example of one is if you take antibiotics for whatever reason, there's actually really good evidence to take a specific probiotic um, during your antibiotic period. And there's two different types. One is Saccharomyces boulardii, or the other one is Lactobacillus ruminis GG. If you take either of them throughout your antibiotic period at a dose of about 5 billion units a day, and you take that throughout the antibiotics and for about a week after. Now, I know people are going, oh my God, I'm so confused. That's a whole lot of information. But I just explained that because that's how prescriptive you need to be to have the health benefit. And, and those uh, clinical trials have shown that reduces your risk of getting antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which affects about 30% of people who have antibiotics. So, um, yeah. That's kind of a long-winded uh, response, but um, you know, I don't think we need to wipe out and just kind of say probiotics are useless. Uh, they've got some clinical really important um, areas, but for the vast majority of us, we don't need to take a daily supplement. Absolutely. I think you put it really well there, and I love the fact that you just jumped into that supplementation thing a little bit because... I think sometimes there can be this idea that, well, supplements are basically kind of close enough to food. You can, they're easily accessible, you know, let's just take lots of supplements and I'll feel great. But um, I'm always probably unpopularly <laughs> um, say that I think it's really, really important that when you are taking supplements in most cases um, to get the recommendation done clinically, um, because I think sometimes what can happen is if you're just taking you know, supplements randomly, first of all, you might not feel the benefit because you're not getting what you need, as you say. Um, but also you could actually be doing a little bit of harm and not, not in like a scary catastrophic way, but like you were talking there in terms of the importance of dietary diversity to support that gut diversity, I'm not sure um, that a lot of people are aware that when you are taking probiotics, you're taking a couple of strains, um, maybe more than a couple, depending on the brand. But And while it could be a good, you know, a healthy bacterial strain, if you're taking a lot of that, you're going to start affecting that diversity. So it's really, really important when you are considering supplements. They can be the most magical things if you get it right. Like some of those studies you're talking about, like certain strains with mental health conditions, certain yeah. strains with, you know, traveler's diarrhea, all of those things. They can be magical, but they have to be applied properly. So I think it's, it's really interesting that, that you brought that up. Yeah, I think it's, it's an important topic because I hate people, um, you know, getting taken advantage of by some of these marketing companies so you can have this pressure that you need to be having something but actually like we said all along gut health good gut health is a lot more simpler than i think a lot of uh, people are making it out to be yeah definitely so i mean speaking of simple let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's dive into um a, a few of the clinical conditions that we do see i think we could probably talk for days on this because there's a lot of, of gut health conditions that people are struggling with, like um, inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, um, celiac disease, like all of these different um, clinical conditions. But what I really wanted to pick your brain on today was IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, um, because I think it's a name that's 
thrown around a lot. I think a lot of people um, might either have been diagnosed with it or they think they might have it or they're wondering if they have it. Um, and I would love if you could talk a little bit about what exactly IBS is um, and what are some of the, the triggers and drivers of this condition that we know? Yeah, look, IBS is so common. It affects around, you know, five to 10% of people. Um, and the research is just exploding in terms of the IBS space where historically it was like people who have IBS, oh, it's just someone with a grumpy gut, you know, um, de-stress and you'll be fine. But now actually we've got kind of clinical criteria which diagnoses someone with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and in terms of, I guess, what IBS is now understood to be, it's actually a dysfunction between the gut and the brain. So everyone's gut and brain's constantly communicating. But with IBS, there seems to be this dysfunction there um, where, you know, the messages that are going from the gut and the brain seem to be kind of hyper-exaggerated. So an example of this is caffeine. So when we all have caffeine, it does speed up our digestive tract a little bit. Um, however, if you have caffeine and you have IBS, for a lot of people, that is speeding up is hyper-exaggerated. Uh, and that's because the communication between the gut and the brain is extra excited. Um, so the effects of caffeine on, on gut movement seems to be you know, much more greater in people with IBS. Not everyone with IBS, but for, for a large number of people. So that seems to be one of the key triggers of IBS. Um, so in terms of, I guess, whether the science is, yes, it's absolutely exploded in terms of um, understanding you know, that IBS is a real condition. It's not something all in people's head, which I think a lot of my, you know, clients have been told for so many years, you know, it is a real thing. But the difficulty, I guess, with diagnosing it is that it's what we call a functional gut disorder. So there is, it's this umbrella term, functional gut disorders. You've got your IBS there, but you can also have things like functional bloating, functional diarrhea, functional constipation, et cetera. And they all have slightly different uh, ways we diagnose it. And again, if you are interested in those other areas, I do talk about how you, you know, how you rule things out um, in Eat Yourself Healthy and what, you know, you talk to your GP about and things like that. Um, but with these functional gut disorders, it's, it, there's no single test to say, yes, you have IBS or yes, you have functional bloating because it's about the movement of your gut. So a lot of our tests currently are, are kind of identify what we call organic diseases, like things like inflammatory bowel disease, like celiac disease. So actually to get a diagnosis of IBS, what I absolutely think is so important people do is you always go to your GP first. If you're having gut symptoms, whether it's loose poops, you know, tummy pain, ongoing bloating, always go to your GP because what they need to do, very, very simple tests, don't be scared of them, but they'll rule out things like inflammatory bowel disease a simple poop test um, and celiac disease as well, because there's around half a million people living in the UK with undiagnosed celiac disease because they're like, Oh, I've just got loose poop. So I just get bloated. It must be IBS. And actually they do have what we call the organic condition. You know, they do have celiac disease. So you have those simple tests done by your GP just to, for peace of mind to rule them out. And then if you don't have them, there is, like I said, that diagnostic criteria. Um, so for things like IBS, you have to have tummy pain at least one day a week. Um, and it that tummy pain has to be related to your pooping habits in some way, whether it gets better or worse around pooping. 
And it has to be, uh, those symptoms have to have existed for at least six months. It can't be a case of, oh, I had a bad curry, you know, so for a couple of days, my poops are a bit loose, or I have a tummy upset, you know, that's kind of normal. Um, it has to be this ongoing thing. So that's a diagnostic criteria um, for IBS. And then, you know, if you do have IBS, in terms of the science and looking at the different therapies, you know, that area has absolutely exploded as well, where there is now really good, simple strategies that people can implement to make really important changes in, in the severity of their symptoms. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. And I think it's quite encouraging as well that like, as at a baseline, always go to your GP just to, just to rule out anything else. Um, but I think it's so nice to, to know as well that, you know, it's an expanding field and we're, we're still learning a lot about IBS, but it's not all in your head. It's, there's definitely something there and there are tools that, that can, you know, support and, and work with you. Um, so I guess in terms of some of the, the common treatment options that might be offered to people experiencing IBS? Because, I mean, your specialty is in gut health, so I'm sure uh, you know a lot more than myself. But I think when it comes to IBS, I'm always quite conscious that while we do know um, some of the, the contributing factors and we, you know, there's that checklist of like, you know, diagnosing it and things like that, there still is quite an individual response in terms of like how people experience the symptoms. Some people will, you know, experience some symptoms, others won't experience those symptoms. So I think there's still quite a lot of individuality in terms of people's experience of this um, condition. So I'd love to hear what, you know, your thoughts on that firstly, and in terms of seeing clients, but also maybe just a brief rundown of, of what the kind of treatments that people might expect to hear about if they are going through this process. Yeah, look, absolutely. In terms of, like we said, IBS, it's a very heterogeneous condition because there's there's four different subtypes of IBS. You can have diarrhea-predominant IBS where you've got really loose poop. Some people have constipation-predominant IBS. Some people have mixed where their poop goes from hard to liquid um, or really soft. And then you have this unspecified where actually their poop kind of looks normal. So there's four subcategories. And what we know in terms of, I guess, the causes of IBS, they can be, again, very heterogeneous. For some people, it's because, you know, they had gastritis or gut infection when they went to India and had some dodgy food. Those people, when they come back to the UK, are a fourfold increased risk of getting IBS. So if you do have a gut infection, you know, that can uh, be a, an absolute increase, increasing your risk. And that we think that's because it changes the types of bacteria in your gut and the, the way the gut and the brain communicate. Um, but then for other people, we know that um, chronic stress and trauma can actually be their trigger for their IBS. So that's why, you know, it does make it quite difficult in terms of just saying, follow this treatment plan and it'll work for you because there's so many different, you know, subtypes of IBS and causes of IBS. Um, but at the Gut Health Clinic, what we, we would do is there's kind of... This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Two different um, routes we would go down. One is what we call first-line management. And the clinical trials have shown that first-line uh, management works in around 50% of people with IBS in terms of getting them, their symptoms to a place where they're happy. And that includes things like, obviously, we'll talk about the diet element, but things like, you know, doing 10 minutes of de-stressing and mindfulness, um, you know, other things which, uh, again, we would recommend, and there's been good evidence, is, is around this thing called the tight pants syndrome, where a lot of people, you know, say we're wearing, you know, our gym clothes all day and we're wearing tights. Now, tight pants syndrome was actually, you know, medically diagnosed, I think it was back in the the 80s um where a medical physician saw that all these people were coming with tummy pain who were wearing high-waisted pants so wearing you know constricted um clothing around your gut ongoingly actually for those who've got kind of more of a sensitive gut can trigger ibs-like symptoms so you know that's one technique is not wearing your tight pants all day long after gym get out of them um, you know, wear more softer clothes around your, your belly. Wow. I feel yeah. like we might need to start a gut-friendly fashion movement here. Yeah. That's fascinating. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and then in terms of, um, you know, the dietary elements, it's about having often smaller, more frequent meals seems to be better tolerated. Mm. puts less stress on your digestive system. Um, you know, if we're having fruit, it's best to have one piece of fruit um, per sitting and spacing that out across um, three sittings a day. Um, you know, avoiding things like the sugar alcohols, uh, things like, you know, the sugar-free chewing gum. They have these things called polyols in them, um, which can kind of trigger gut symptoms in a lot of people. So there's the kind of 10 different strategies. Um, and again, I do talk through a lot of them in, in Eat Yourself Healthy, which is what I would call first-line strategies. And I, I recommend people really try them before they go on these other more complex diets for managing IBS, because it's an easy win. You know, you might need to change a few things in your diet and you actually, you know, really do see quite an improvement in your gut symptoms. And another simple one with the first line strategies, which we talk about is chewing your food. Well, it sounds ridiculously simple. And people look at me in clinic and they're like, Megan, I make mean, this, is, I want, I want a harder treatment. This is not going to do. I'm like, <laughs> I get it. Give it a try for a week and just let me know. And Literally chewing your food at least, you know, 20 to 40 times, depending on what you're eating. If it's nuts, you know, go to the higher amount. Has been shown in clinical trials to really maximize your digestive absorption of your nutrients and, and reduce some gut symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we not only start to physically break down our food in our mouth, but we have enzymes in our saliva which start to chemically break down our food. So yeah. if we're not chewing well, 
we're already on the back foot in terms of putting so much stress on our gut. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's, I don't think a lot of us consider chewing as part of the digestive process. A lot of us have gotten into um, some poor habits around eating. You know, you're kind of like eating your sandwich on the way back from the shop where you purchased it, or you're eating at your desk, or you have back-to-back meetings and you forgot to eat, but you're starving. So you're trying to like sneak something on the side. And all of those things are going to be bypassing that that first stage of, of digestion. So obviously there's going to be an impact. So that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, in today's day and age, we kind of celebrate multitasking. But mm. when it comes to eating and our digestion, we really need to go back to basics because it, it really does improve your digestion. Definitely. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like the first line. So really try those simplest strategies because, you know, it will save you a lot of grief. But if, you, if that doesn't work for you, you know, I would try them for at least four weeks. If that doesn't work for you, then move on to what we would typically call the second line dietary management strategies. Um, And this is uh, something that probably a lot of people are starting to hear more of of, is the low FODMAP diet. Yes. Um, So I'm not going to go through, but it's an acronym essentially, which just stands for all these sciencey names of different types of carbohydrates. And the thing about the low FODMAP diet, which I think people don't always hear about, is actually it's a three-step process. Mm-hmm. So there is a restriction phase, that's step number one. Uh, then there is the reintroduction phase, step number two. And then there is the personalization phase. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people get stuck on the restriction phase. And what my research group and many other research groups around the world have shown that if you get stuck on this restriction phase, actually it can have a negative impact on your gut microbes. And then there is that vicious cycle that you start to like starve some of your good microbes Therefore, it is likely it's going to make your gut even more sensitive to these foods when you eat them. And that can actually, you know, worsen your IBS in the long term. So if you are thinking about this low FODMAP diet, which the evidence suggests should only ever be done with a um, FODMAP trained, you know, registered dietitian, um, because it's a very complex diet, it can, um, you know, lead to nutrition deficiencies if you don't do it right. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, Dr. Google, um, the FODMAP lists aren't very comprehensive. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're part of the NHS, you know, ask your GP um, to get referred to see an NHS dietitian because I know that seeing a private dietitian ab- absolutely is not affordable for everyone. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, going on that FODMAP process can, you know, the, the science has shown you know, improve symptoms dramatically in around 80% of people um, who don't respond to the first line management. So it can be really powerful, but it is, you know, that restriction phase uh, goes between four to eight weeks and you cut Mm. out a lot of actually quite healthy food, um, things like, you know, your legumes, your garlic and onion, things like that. So it's essentially giving your gut a little bit of rest and then uh, you go through the reintroduction. So then you start to re-nourish your gut bacteria, re-fertilize them once your gut's had time to rest. Mm. Um, and, and for those who, you know, are on the NHS waiting list, sadly in some boroughs, it's like 12 months to see a dietitian, can't afford a private dietitian. I do recommend, you know, checking out Eat Yourself Healthy because I've in there I've developed what I call the FODMAP light approach. Yeah. And that is where it's not the full blown, um, low FODMAP diet, which is really tricky to follow and, you know, should be done with a, a trained specialist, but it's about identifying some of the the higher FODMAP foods and just 
you know, reducing the amount you're having. And I also talk people through about how to do the reintroduction, the personalization, in a very safe manner. Mm. Um, so I think that's much more accessible, um, you know, for, for everyday person who can't afford to see, you know, a private dietitian and don't want to wait 12 months if they're in a borough where there is that waiting list. Yeah, I, that's, that's really, really good information, actually, because I think something that I've always struggled with um, from a clinical perspective on, on the FODMAP diet is that, like, while, yes, the research is, is really, really great, in a practical setting where the FODMAP is being applied, it can be a bit of a minefield. So obviously we don't have time to kind of go into the deep, deep details of, of what the FODMAP diet is, but I think it can be quite confusing when you're all of a sudden telling people to, you know, restrict or reduce things that earlier we were saying like legumes and stuff are really good for your gut health. Yeah. Um, but I love what you're saying in that sense, because again, like with supplements, there is a reason that there are clinicians out there and there are certain things that really do need to be um, done with a clinician because I see a lot of people getting burnt out in that early FODMAP stage where, where it's that kind of restrictive phase. Um, and often that can come as a result sometimes of, you know, getting overwhelmed, not feeling well, going to Dr. Google and trying to, to follow the diet, but getting frustrated because, of course, from the outside perspective, it looks like it makes no sense. Yeah, um, so that's, that's really interesting. There are other resources that people can try while they're waiting to, to see a specialist. So there's still things that you can do. You're not on your own. You don't just have to wait in discomfort. You can look at some of those first phase things and then also maybe look at some of the FODMAP light um, approaches. That's really, really good to know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, you know, I see so many people suffering in silence. And if I could change the NHS and, and put more money into this, you know, that would be the first thing if I was ever a politician um, because, you know, one of the studies, which I think is so powerful, showed it, it was included like close to 2,000 people with IBS. They said that they would be willing to give up 25% of their remaining life to be symptom free. Yeah. And I think that's an important stat for people without IBS to appreciate that having IBS really it's such a, a morbid condition, like people can't see it. So they might not respect it, but people are going through hell with their symptoms, so much anxiety, you know, can't go out to coffee because they don't know where the nearest toilet is and all of this sort of stuff. They're really suffering. Um, so if you know someone with IBS, you know, give them a hug, but they're going through a lot. No, I absolutely. And again, as you say, I think it's, it's these invisible conditions that we can't kind of see clearly that, you know, we can take for granted, but it's a really, really challenging thing. You know, people have to move through a normal life where there's going to be general stresses. You're not always going to have every meal perfectly balanced and perfectly cooked. You're not always going to fit in your meditation and your mindfulness and your exercise. Like people have to move through this normal life while actually having quite significant internal reactivity to those, um, to that environment. So, you know, I think it's really important to also point out that this is, this can be a real struggle and it can be, um, very, very hard for people. And it, it can be an emotional challenge as well as just a physical one. Um, 
But again, as you're saying, there's a lot of, of support out there. So let's be kind, let's support um, people who are struggling and try and uh, start feeling better. So we're coming to a close, but I don't want to let you go without asking just a few quick fire questions um, so that we can take away a few little chunks of information that maybe we can start applying this week to um, support a healthier gut future. Um, so to begin with, I wanted to ask, from your experience seeing many clients over the years, what do you think is one of the biggest barriers to implementing better nutritional practices? I think it's people being all or nothing. So people's, you know, black and white approach, I have to go gung ho um, or I'm just going to go completely blow out. And it's like you're highlighting before, no one has the perfect life where you can spend, you know, maybe some people are lucky enough to have <laughs> hours planning their meals and making sure, you know, they're having, you know, 40 plants a week and all that sort of stuff. It's literally the, the key barrier I see, but that is so far from what we see in terms of the science, in terms of what we know brings people results, last long lasting results. Mm. simple changes. So when I was talking about getting in more plant-based um, foods into your diet, you know, if you're having bolognese for dinner, literally just get a, a can of lentils, add them in and cut out a little bit of the mints. That's adding extra plants into your food to feed those gut microbes. And mm. that on its own will be doing, you know, a lot of good. It's small, simple changes that are very practical that I promise you will end, you know, in feeling a lot better. I love that. Um, and then for anyone who's, who's listening, what are three of the things that we could start doing today um, to support better long-term gut health? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there are so many, but if I, I mean, narrowed yeah. it down, I would say probably the first one is about that diversity. So mm -hmm. trying to get as many different types of plant-based foods as you can. So why not jot down the different types of plants you're having across the week? See if you're hitting your 30. Um, and then thinking about ways you can diversify it. So instead of always just getting your, um, your rice, why don't you, you know, your brown rice, why don't you mix it up by having some quinoa or some buckwheat? And actually, most of the supermarkets now stock these. And if you cook them from scratch, they're actually at no higher price. Um, the same with, you know, your legumes, your beans, your pulses. Instead of just always getting chickpeas, get the three bean mix. Um, and you're going to get more different types of fibers that way at no extra cost. So it's about trying to get easy wins with trying to get your 30 plant points a week in. So mm -hmm. that's my first one, diversify your diet. Um, the second one I think would come down to chewing your food well. So trying to you know sit down and just count how many times you chew your food. Most of us, it's like less, less than eight times. Um, particularly those who are trying to multitask, but try hit 20 and, mm. and see how your digestion starts to feel a little bit smoother. You know, even if you don't have really bad gut symptoms, but we all suffer a bit of bloating from time to time and that really can make a difference. So, you know, chew your food well essentially is my second tip. And the third one is trying to take out five to 10 um, minutes a day to do some sort of mindfulness. Mm. So whether it, you know, is sitting down doing, some breathing exercises like the, the box breathing, you know, four in, hold for four, four out. Um, 
etc or whether it's doing some journaling for five mm. minutes but it's really important even you know new parents where five minutes it's so hard to get five minutes but it actually will make you feel a lot better and, and i certainly you know not just from my patient's experience my client's experience but from my own experience being a new mum, having yeah. you know if some days 10 minutes is too much having my five minutes to do some sort of mindfulness really has made me feel a lot more calmer and you know less likely to have gut symptoms um so that would be my three tips so diversify your diet chew your food well and um mindfulness five to ten minutes a day some sort of way to kind of calm that gut brain axis i love that so anybody listening between listening to this episode and our bonus cook along that's going to be released in a few days we're going to be applying those three tips so mixed can of beans instead of the regular ones we're going to do our mindfulness and we're going to pay attention to our chewing i love that so my final question for you today a little bit of a wild card but this is a bbc good food podcast <laughs> so we always have to talk about cake but also i just think it's really really interesting um when talking to health professionals as yourself because i think sometimes we can look from the outside in and think these people are just, you know, eating lettuce leaves all the time and they're meditating and they never crave sugar or anything. I can't relate to this, but I know that that's not completely true. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> biggest foodie right here. I will eat exactly. and try anything. <laughs> so I would love to hear from you when you are craving a cake or you're going for a sweet treat or bake, what is your uh, cake of choice? I mean, I am a big cake fan, mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I actually do practice what I preach in terms yeah. of, yes, absolutely. I'm going to have cake. But what I think about when I'm having cake is what's in this cake that not only feeds my taste buds, but also my gut bacteria. Yeah. So, you know, one of my favorite cakes is actually a pistachio cake. And, you know, I love pistachios. They are not only so tasty for my taste buds, um, but actually they're prebiotics. Remember we, we spoke about prebiotic? It actually, they've got these things in them which nourish our gut bacteria. Hmm. So by adding, you know, a handful of pistachios into whatever cake you like, I add loads of pistachios, you're actually not only feeding your taste buds, but also your gut bacteria. The same with things like adding some lentils um, to, you know, your chocolate brownies. Yeah. or uh, adding some beetroot uh, to a cake. Just adding in a little bit of plant along with the sugar and if you want to add things like your olive oil, your butter even, you know, mm. it's completely fine. It's just thinking about what you can add in to nourish them. And it adds an extra complexity of, of flavor and taste, if you ask me, because plants just are oozing with flavor. Um, exactly. So yeah, that's my approach. And that have everything, all those things you love, but just add in a little bit of plants. Mm. And that's, you know, honestly what I do, how I, how I um, practice. I absolutely love that because what I'm hearing is still eat, enjoy your cake, but try some different recipes. You know, try the carrot cake, add some walnuts into your banana bread, you know, try the pistachio cake, which I'm definitely going to try, you know, Go for those, those bean brownies, all of those great things. I love it. Absolutely love it. Listen, thank you so much for being here. We've come to the end of our time. I feel like I've learned so much from you and I know that our audience is going to take away so much from this important conversation because as we both know, there's a lot of people struggling with their gut health and it's not an easy path. 
So thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, for anybody listening, you can head over to our podcast page, uh, bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast to find out more information about Megan. Um, and you can also find further resources and a link to her book. Um, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And I just love that more and more people are going to be empowered to really take control of their gut health because it's such a positive thing. It shouldn't be feared. It shouldn't be complex. Amazing. You've been listening to part two of our two-part episode with Dr. Megan Rossi on the BBC Good Food Health podcast. For more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.